your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. At, uh, this uh, uh, fun topic of divorce, okay, but that, it's not going to be topical. So I'm going to, oh, and uh, I'm going to, I'm going to come at this just a bit differently than, uh, than what we're used to, I hope, um, and to to give you a perspective on what what I think Mark is trying to do with um, with what's going on here. There is the there is the teaching about divorce, and uh, and it's pretty clear, very clear in Mark. Uh, but I want to, and I'm going to deal with like how the how Matthew also uh, deals with the topic of divorce. But I I want us to always remember that we're dealing with when we're reading the book of Mark, we're reading it within the context of Mark. And so he's doing something with chapter 10, verses 1, 1 through 12, that is, uh, that's, he's not, this is not simply some, some topical uh, textbook that we're opening and finding the answers to all of our problems, okay? So uh, we're going to, um, I want to read through this, uh, and, um, and then we're going to, I'm going to try to track the, the flow of Mark and what he's actually doing with it. But let's, um, let's pray first before we get started. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, this day, for this time. We do thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that uh, today you would be in our midst, that you would help us as we seek to understand, that we seek to live uh, in this new age, in the new age of the resurrection by the Spirit, we pray, Father, that you would be in our midst today, that you would, uh, that you would comfort, that you would convict, Father, but that you would help us, Father, to live victorious, uh, that uh, you'd help us to realize we've been delivered from this present evil age, and we've been uh, brought into the kingdom of your beloved Son, and, and uh, help us, Father, to live uh, in that way and, and victorious in your kingdom. Uh, we pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment to you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, keeping in mind what we have uh, just looked at in the previous chapter, what Jesus has said about unity within the kingdom of God, and especially among uh, the workers in the kingdom, 
And, and the danger uh, that is presented when we disregard the unity within the body, we should come to this passage and think of it in relation to what he has just said. He said that we should go to drastic measures to any length, plucking out the eye, cutting off the arm, to prevent stumbling in the mission that's given to us. In our present chapter, chapter 10, there's an introductory statement, very brief, about Jesus' travels, and then there's a trap. The tricky topic of divorce. It may be a trap for me as well. Let's hope not. We, fi- we might find it strange that the topic turns to divorce right after this section on unity within the body. But it makes sense if we think about it within those parameters. It is not, however, a topical change. It is not as if Mark is simply bouncing from topic to topic, addressing everything, every little topic that, that, uh, that mankind has a problem with. It is not a systematic theology textbook. And they are not to be read in such a way. While it is true that, that they do address topics and doctrines, we must be very careful to read them within the context of the book, the story, especially the story of Israel as it is coming to its climax in what Jesus is inaugurating, the kingdom of God. Otherwise, we will miss perhaps their central meanings. To, to disassociate them from the story that Mark is telling and from the larger story of what is happening with Israel is to miss the backstory, the rationale for the topics that are mentioned and the rationale for their organization within the larger book. Both of these are load-bearing. So for this section, we must ask, what is this text all about in relation to its context? What is this test that Jesus has given all about? Jesus has begun to teach, and the Pharisees, seeking to test him, ask one question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What does he mean? What do they mean by lawful? Now, we might not even consider their rationale for asking this, but the fact that it is described as a test is very important. Are they truly seeking to know his opinion, that they may follow him in it, or are they seeking to ensnare him? Probably the latter. We should think of the Pharisees not as people in official power positions. They are not. We often do, though. We think of the the Pharisees as as kind of having this power that um, they're officially in power. And it's true that in some sense they're recognized in that way, but they are not officially in power. The chief priests, yes, they are. Herod, yes. Pilate, yes, but not the Pharisees. They are the rabbis. They are influential, but they are not in power. But they hold considerable sway within that society, lots of influence. They would be, in our day, the equivalent of journalists. Journalists are not officially in power. They do not have official sanction from government, but they have considerable influence within society. And it is the journalists who are consistently looking for the angle, the scoop, the dirt by which to ensnare. 
Now, this is not a, it's not a perfect analogy, but if you think of the Pharisees in this way, this is what, what's going on. They, are, they see someone who is rising to the top. Jesus is coming about. He's preaching the kingdom of God, and they are the ones that, are, that take it upon themselves to ensnare him and to bring him down. They wouldn't just do this for anyone, but someone who, like Jesus, is coming about as uh, arriving on the scene as a king, they are all over him. They're out there looking for dirt, looking to ensnare, and that's exactly what they're doing in this situation. What they are doing is they're seeking to get him in trouble with the real authorities. Recall that within the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan is where John the Baptist had been preaching and going about his ministry. And recall the reason that John the Baptist was killed by Herod at the behest of, of Herodias and her daughter. He had criticized Herod's taking the wife of his brother Philip. And it seems that Herodias had actually instigated the divorce from, from Philip, Herod's brother. And this will make sense of what he says to the disciples in private. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. But notice that he's careful to say that explicitly in public. He does not say it in public. He says it in private. What, it seems, what seems to be happening here is that the Pharisees are trying to use their influence to ensnare him so that they will get him put to death like they did John the Baptist. If they can get him to criticize Herod, then they can get him put away for good. What better way to set him up? Very much like our political discourse today. Now, the trap was set. How would he answer it? If we know one thing, it's that he will answer it wisely. We commonly interpret this passage as just one of the few passages where Jesus gives us his view on divorce. Is he for it, or is he against it? It's kind of silly questions to ask, but we, we do this mentally. Like, is he, gonna, is he for it? Does he permit it, or does he not? If he does, under what circumstances? These are always the questions that we ask as, as fallen sinners. The problem, uh, though it shouldn't be, is that here we read of no exception whatsoever. The one who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The one who divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery. Very harsh, very clear, very plain. So what we normally do in this situation is that we go to Matthew, where we find what we think we're looking for, the so-called exception clauses in chapters 5 and 19. These clauses seem to suggest that Jesus allowed divorce under some circumstances and that this has something to do with sexual immorality. Now, we know that, sexual, uh, that sexuality within marriage or sexual unfaithfulness during marriage is called adultery, and thus we, we conclude that adultery is permissible. Uh, it's a permissible reason for divorce, and then we've at least settled part of the question. But I don't think this deals with our problems, and we're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to look at that clause very closely. Now, um, one thing that we should we should step back from these gospels and say is that 
they are not seeking to nail down every topic. Right? They do give us a lot to go on, but they are not seeking to nail down every topic. I'm going to suggest that Jesus never gives permission for divorce from one's husband or wife. And I'd like to say before I, before I get into the rationale for this, that I am not saying, therefore, that we can go be, be mean to our spouses and do whatever we want to them because they can't divorce us. If someone thinks that way, their condemnation is just. Okay? So that is not what I'm saying. And please do not hear me saying that. But neither this text nor the one in Matthew are giving permission for divorce. Now, I want to deal with what is often called the exception clauses in Matthew. And you can flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And then hold your finger there and, uh, and then go to Matthew 19 verse 9. We're going to look at these, we're going to look at these in order, but they have, they have in this, they have this little clause that says, you can't divorce your wife except for, and we're going to look at what that means, and we're going to especially look at what that means within Matthew, because this is, it's important to keep it within Matthew, because Matthew has a, a strategy here. Matthew 5, 31 and 32 this seems to be exactly the same, basically the same words that Jesus is using in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 10. But there's a, there's a bit of a difference. Everyone who divorces his wife, except for, and I'm going to use the Greek here because uh, they usually uh, translate it in a variety of ways, except for porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, chapter 19, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and, and marries another commits adultery. It's still pretty harsh. But let's talk about the word porneia. This word is variously translated, and you may have something like sexual immorality in, in the ESV, if that's what you're reading, or unchastity in the New American Standard Bible. In one of these situations, the New American Standard is not consistent. But note that it is not talking about adultery, and it is never translated as such. Oftentimes, it's translated as fornication, which I would say is correct. Now, some might say that, that actually this is a liberalization of, of the views of Jesus, a softening, if you will, where any act of sexual immorality gives permission for divorce and that it doesn't specifically have to be adultery. This is not likely, and I don't think this is the case. I think something very specific is in, is in mind here, something that happens within the culture of Jesus that we no longer observe. And I'll try to, I'll try to bring this out, and I think it will make sense if we see it this way. Something very specific is being referred to, something that happens within a cultural practice that we no longer observe. That practice is called betrothal. In betrothal, in the Jewish world, the marriage had not been consummated through intercourse, but it was still considered marriage. The closest thing in our culture is engagement, which is similar, but it is non-binding, 
and does not require a divorce to end it. Betrothal, however, did. In betrothal, the marriage is a quasi-marriage, but it hasn't been fully inaugurated. Commitments have been made, but without consummation. If the, in the Jewish world, if unfaithfulness occurred during this time of betrothal, a sending, of, a sending away was permitted, and a certificate of divorce was required. And I submit to you that this is the type of immorality that is accepted, ec accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, in Matthew's gospel. Okay? He makes an exception for this, and that's it. But why? Why would this be important for Matthew to emphasize and to make an exception for? Who, when they were betrothed, had chosen not to send away his wife? Within the story of Matthew, it's Joseph. Joseph had chosen. Though he was betrothed to Mary, he chose not to send her away. And this sending away is, is the equivalent of divorce. That's how they talk about it. Send away. So what the Pharisees had said was, can a man send away his wife? That's what they said. In other words, can a man divorce his wife? Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Hear that? Send her away. He was going to divorce her secretly. That's what the words mean. He planned to divorce her privately since she had, so he thought, engaged in porneia, sexual unfaithfulness during betrothal, before the consummation of the marriage. He didn't, of course, but he would have been justified in doing so. And Matthew wants us to know the great character of Joseph, that he would have been within his rights to put her away had she been unfaithful during betrothal. But she wasn't, and he didn't send her away. Now, just in case you think I'm making this uh, too much of this, look at John chapter 8, verses 40 and following. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about who truly is in the family of Abraham. And he says to them, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of Pornea. We have one father, even God. What are they accusing him of? They're not accusing him of being born of adultery, but premarital discourse. This, to me, makes perfect sense of why Matthew includes the exception clause and the others do not. So what this does is it brings us back to our text, and it says the exception clause is for something that does not apply to us. Therefore, and I know this sounds very harsh, and I'm going to come back to how we deal with, with situations that are difficult and situations that are, that are not what we would expect uh, within our lives. But what it does to us is it brings us back to no exception whatsoever. 
Jesus never permits divorce. And would it make sense for him to encourage it, to say, oh, it's okay? Absolutely not. Does it mean that he, that he somehow doesn't love you, doesn't deal with you? No, not at all. And we'll come back, we'll come back to that toward the end. But let's look at our text. Now, I said that neither this text nor the one in Matthew uh, are giving permission for divorce. What is this one about, then, if it isn't meant exactly to lay down the law of marriage and divorce? It is a dispute about Torah. Notice they said, is it lawful? Okay, this is a very important point within the gospel. It is a dispute over Torah. One where Jesus' view on divorce might just provide a way to ensnare him, and this is what they're after. It doesn't mean that it won't help us with our ethical dilemmas. I believe it will in a big way, but perhaps not in the way we think. They have asked, is it lawful? In our jargon, this roughly means, how do you interpret the scriptures in relation to this topic? That's what it means. He then turns it around on them. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus' reply includes an interpretation of their quote of Deuteronomy 24.1. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And then a loose quote from Genesis 5.2 and perhaps Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and he says, but from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2, 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Then an interpretation. So no longer are they two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. What is he doing here? It seems as though they're just trading verses, right? You say this verse, this is what God says, right? This is what Moses gave us. I say this one. Am I right or are you right? And, but, but this is not exactly what he's doing here. It's not a scripture fight. What is happening? There are some assumptions, some things that we need to be reminded of that are present here. What have we been saying all along about Jesus' mission? What is he doing? He is inaugurating the kingdom of God. This is not something that's totally unexpected. The scriptures have taught it and that it would arrive. And as we saw earlier in Mark, the kingdom of God can be spoken of in many ways. Forgiveness of sins, return from exile, planting of seeds that yield an abundant harvest, think of chapter 4, uh, the sower, passing away of covenant markers of Israel that marked them out as being in covenant, but that also separated them from Gentiles. We think of what he does with the food laws, what he does with Sabbaths, right? These are, these are boundary markers that are covenantal. He's spoken of all of these and, and said that they are being brought to a climax, right? They're being brought to their final end. All of these different elements talk about the new covenant. And this is another way of talking about the kingdom of God. And here's the important thing here. In the new covenant, hardness of heart will be dealt with. 
And Jesus is signaling that this new state of affairs is now arriving. In the new covenant, hardness of heart, which is what, brought about, what brings about divorce, is dealt with. And Jesus is signaling that this new state of affairs is arriving. Thus, he says, because of the hardness of heart, your hardness of heart, Moses permitted it. The crucial point for our present purpose is not only that Jesus envisages uh, the new age, the time of renewal, as happening in his own ministry, it is that this time of renewal must contain a cure for hardness of heart. And I think that's what he's getting at. Yes, the Pharisees can find a verse that permits them to divorce their wives, but Jesus says that time when Moses permitted you to, to divorce your wife, and this is key, that was a temporary phase in the purposes of God. God made provisions not because that's what he wanted, but the state of the people, their hardness of heart required it. Jesus is saying that this temporary phase of hardness of heart is coming to an end, and he, by his own actions, is bringing that about. And in the new age that he is inaugurating, called the kingdom of God, hard hearts that result in divorce are dealt with. And those of us who are living in this new age, the age of the spirit, the age of the resurrection can live with soft hearts toward those we love. During that old phase, the spirit had not been poured out. And though Moses envisioned it, a time when Israel's hardness of heart would be dealt with, there were temporary measures put in place to deal with the sin that came about because of that hardness of heart. And what Jesus does is to take us back to what mankind was intended to be. This is why he goes to Genesis, not simply to say the end is exactly like the beginning, but to say that the divine intention in the beginning was now being made possible in and through Jesus. In the beginning, he made them male and female. In the beginning, he joined them together, not to be separated, but to reflect the divine image that was given to mankind. Not merely the man, but mankind, composed of male and female. In the passage that he quotes from Genesis 5-2, it says, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them mankind. Not he named him mankind, but he named them mankind. And mankind is given a vision. Mankind is given a mission, a vocation, a calling to reflect God out into the world to exercise dominion over all that God had created and called very good. And Jesus is saying that what he is doing is bringing this to a reality. He's restoring man to his original intention and even something greater. And maybe in this new age that Jesus is bringing about, this relationship that exists as male and female joined by God is meant to reflect that relationship that exists between God and his church, between Christ and his church. This is what Paul seems to say in Ephesians 5. Now, by taking us back to Genesis 2 and 5, he is not simply proof texting. And this is very important. This is often how we see, uh, see these gospel writers and Paul himself acting. They are not. He is not simply finding a verse to fit his doctrine. He is telling a story about what he himself is doing through and for Israel and the world 
that is reflected in the story of scripture. God has made male and female as a way through which he himself would rule the world. God had made mankind to be one flesh, to be united in one purpose, image bearing, reflecting the rule of God into the world through stewardship. This situation, of course, did not endure, but it stands there as a testimony to the divine purpose for mankind that would one day be realized. And Jesus is saying the provision for that hardness of heart that resulted from Adam is now being made. He is making provision. Because the new covenant inaugurated in his blood will make it possible to live at peace with our spouses. And in the new covenant, spoken of in the same book that gave provision for the Pharisees to divorce their wives, the new covenant was spoken of as coming about in the future when Israel would seek their Lord from exile. This new covenant would, in, would revolve a returning of the Lord, to the Lord and an obedience that would encompass the whole heart, the whole soul, and the whole will. In this new covenant, the Lord would circumcise the hearts of those uh, who turned to him in order that they might obey his commandments as they were truly meant to be kept. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may have life. The time for that circumcision of heart had come. Moses had said earlier in the book, after challenging Israel to live uh, God's intention for them, he said, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. And then he says in verse 16, this is chapter 10, verse 16, so circumcise your heart and do not stiffen your neck any longer. He recognizes, Moses himself recognizes, in the same book that the Pharisees are quoting, Moses himself recognizes that the problem with keeping the commandments of God is hardness of heart. The Septuagint is even clearer, and it actually uses this word that is used in, in Mark. It says, circumcise therefore the hard-heartedness of you, and do not stiffen the neck. And it uses that exact word, and I think this is what, this is what Mark, this is what Jesus is referring to. The book that the Pharisees are using to justify the separating of what God has joined together was also the book that spoke about the new covenant, and the circumcised heart that would one day become a reality for those who believe. And Jesus says that time has now come. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. So they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus, when Jesus begins to talk about in the beginning, it is his way of talking about what was promised 
that would come about as a result of Adam's sin. It was the new age that he was bringing in. That new covenant wherein hardness of heart that ends in divorce will be dealt with. And if we don't read it this way, we have divorced it from its anchoring in the covenantal faithfulness of God to his people and the world. And it simply gives us Jesus' decontextualized view on the topic. He is not simply saying, okay, guys, get out your pens and let's write what I believe about divorce. And then go put it into practice. Yes, there's that in a sense. But if we decontextualize it from what he's saying about the new covenant, then we've missed the point. What he is doing in his life and in his ministry and in his death and resurrection is providing provision for hardness of heart, and that is what is always at the root of divorce. I don't care how you slice it. I don't care, I don't care how innocent one party is. Yes, there often are, there is an innocent party usually, but hardness of heart is always at the root of separation between people. Always. There's no other way to slice it. Now, let's recap. Neither this passage nor Matthew's permits a reading where divorce can be dissolved, uh, where marriage can be dissolved just because we want it to be dissolved. Matthew's exception clause doesn't relate to us since we don't practice betrothal. Therefore, Jesus is clear. When we divorce our spouses and marry another, we commit adultery. No matter how hard we try, we will not find permission for our desire to get out of an unpleasant situation, nor will we find confirmation for our hardness of heart, not from God. And this is the primary reason, and this is what I want you to understand. And all of you who, people who have not entered into marriage, I want you to think about this. This is the primary reason that divorce is not permitted. The new age is here. The resurrection is here. And we can do this in the power of the Spirit. To live in the new age as male and female, to be married while living in the new age of eternal life, which we claim to be living in, and then to break that bond, that covenant that reflects that greater marriage between us and our Lord, is to split the body of Christ. And I see no way around this conclusion. However, I want to say this. This present evil age, out of which we have been rescued in Christ, is still here and present and exerting influence over us. Though it is defeated in the Messiah, as we put it to death uh, through the Spirit, it is still here. And this taint, the taint of this present evil age, has resulted in divorce, even among some of us here. And it's not my intention to heap guilt upon you or anyone. It is to say this, to those of you who have been touched by divorce, while there's no permission given for yours or anyone else's hardness of heart that led to divorce, nor will God encourage our hardness of heart, there is forgiveness and there is healing and restoration in Christ. See John 4 with the Samaritan woman. You've had five husbands, and the husband you have now is not your husband. And then Jesus 
marries her figur figuratively. She becomes married to him. There is healing and there is forgiveness in the Lord. But we must seek it out and we must deal with the Lord on it. It is a, it is a very serious sin. If you have never resolved it and been restored to the Lord, you should do business with him. There's abundant healing there. If you have dealt with it, let him take it and do not live in the past shackled by the memory of forgiven sins. To those of us in marriage, the new age, the new covenant has dawned in Jesus. And if we claim to be living within it, if we claim to believe in him, it means that going forward, we must surrender our broken lives and our marriages to his kingdom and avoid seeking a way out. Not just endure to the end, but to make it the best we can. For most of us, myself included, hardness of heart means laziness in marriage, a failure to work at it. And I think if we all examine our hearts, we'll see that this is, this is the case for all of us. Our hardness of heart is a failure to work at it a failure to lay down our lives for those we love, a failure to die to ourselves and our own desires. God help us. To those of you who would contemplate marriage, ensure that you and the one you enter into marriage with are in it for the long haul. Continually be about refreshing your mind by the scriptures. Fall in love with Jesus, live in his word, and then seek marriage. We are fickle creatures, all of us, often tossed about by our emotions. Realize this about yourself. Know it, know yourself as best you can and act preventatively to rid yourself of the things that can destroy your marriage. Work at it. For what Jesus has brought about through his life-giving death and resurrection, the new covenant, has made possible what God envisioned from the beginning, that male and female beholding the face of Jesus can reflect the divine image in and through our marriage.